Thank you so very, very, very much. I appreciate that. Brother and sister, singing unto the Lord, thank you so very much. Come on up. The, um, the privilege that I have this morning is to be able to give the pulpit away. I need you to stand on this side. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes. We had the privilege of working together a number of years ago, and uh, we even have the picture from a number of years ago. We haven't changed a bit. Well, let me rephrase that. I haven't changed a bit, have I? Okay. So my much, much older brother is here this morning to preach the Word of God. I am delighted that he is still in good enough form to be able to speak behind a pulpit. Take this with you so I don't drink the wrong one. All right. <laughs> no, Wayne, thank you so very much. It's a, it's a thrill to be here. Um, your pastor, and if I can refer to him as Wayne, if you don't mind, Pastor Wayne, we grew up in a family in Minnesota, as you probably have heard n- numerous times as he's illustrated or spoken about his background. But um, we come from Minnesota. Our mother and father had six children. And among the siblings, I'm the oldest, and then there was a sister two years younger, and then another brother two years younger, and then Wayne, and then we have two younger brothers that sort of were caboose, okay, towards the end after several years. But um, I started seminary in Minnesota, moved out to Pennsylvania to finish, and then a few years later, after graduating from Bible college, Wayne and Deb, who had just gotten married, came out to seminary here. And as uh, I was in my senior year of seminary, we were asked to come to Lebanon and fill the pulpit of a church that was without a pulpit. Had 11 members. There were about 25 to 30 people attending of all ages, meaning children and all. And on that very first Sunday yet, as we came... I had the privilege of being pulpit supply, and he then took any of the youth and the younger people, and that was the beginning, and we were not apart as a team for the next five years. And then uh, two years, or five years, and then for about two and a half to three years, Wayne pastored a church, planted a church, and uh, grew a church from absolutely three or four people, and then his family in a chicken coop near Lancaster in Parksburg, grew that church where they ended up purchasing a building, growing it to a couple of hundred people, and seeing most of those were brand new converts. And so uh, after a little over eight and a half years or so, and the Lord called us to back to Minnesota to pastor for a number of years, Wayne became the senior pastor and has done this great work for the Lord. And uh, and I love your pastor. He's just done a marvelous work. Um, and uh, very few brothers, as you look through the history of church leadership, have an opportunity to work together. And we did. I mean, you go back to the Wesleys and others, but we had the privilege of working together. And, and it, it was wonderful. Well, you know, there are brother times together where we, if you came in, we would be wrestling on the floor in the app. Not really. But... Uh, uh, but but we did no seriously uh, i get along with my brother wayne probably better than anybody else in the family and uh, and uh, a, a couple of years ago my father went home to be with the lord two years before that uh, my mother went home to be with the lord and um, uh, the last time I think we got together was probably when Dad died, and we were all back in Minnesota. Life is busy, 
uh, for him. Uh, Wayne just immerses himself, always has in his ministry. Um, I've been involved the last 35 years, seminary training. I work as a theologian. My specialty is a doctorate of theology, and I've been doing that. Well, at the same time, the last 14 years while doing that, uh, the seminary got started 20 years ago, but we joined the staff about 14 when it really started growing. And Pastor Stephen Davey, Dr. Davey, asked us to come aboard. But a lot of other friends that we had in ministry with other seminaries, we all got together there, and uh, it's growing. But um, uh, for 14 years, and I've also been the executive pastor of a church, which in January just stepped away from that role, teach full time. Uh, And so we stay busy. And I was sharing with Debbie when we just did this, the testimony with one another. This is the first time Lucy and I have been able to get together with them for two years. First time they've been able to. And I've absolutely loved the last few days here. Uh, and, and I forgot how good it is to be together with Wayne and Deb. And so Lucy and I, we, as we drove to the church this morning, I just want to thank the two of you. And uh, uh, I, I loved it. And it's like, I, I miss it. I said to Debbie, I miss these times with your pastor. Uh, he is. And, and one of the reasons I brought up about seminary isn't to tell you about me. But I, I can honestly say from the bottom of my heart, and... Uh, over the years, as a president of a college and a seminary for a long time, I had to travel a lot. Uh, one year, I was out on 48 weekends a year speaking, doing those kind of things. So we traveled a lot. I say all that to say I've literally been able to preach in all 50 of the, uh, 49 of the states. I haven't preached in Hawaii. My brother Wayne, if somebody asked me, name a good pastor, it's, it's Wayne Burgraff. And I have to be careful because it sounds like I'm, I'm um, bragging. Um, but I am. Uh, I don't know of a better pastor, pastor. And again today, I couldn't tell you how proud I am to hear him as he's taking you through Revelation. There are not commentators that can do that good of a job in their hermeneutics. And uh, uh, I, I don't know. I wish you could come along with us sometimes and get to see uh, what you've been blessed with. And so I can only say that as an older brother. And I'm tired of being referred to as the older brother. Who's the better looking, by the way? At this age, <laughs> I don't care about age. We're both, frankly, old. But the bottom line is, <laughs> all in favor of me being better looking, raise your hand. All right. Okay. <laughs> And, and all in favor of Wayne say nothing, all right. <laughs> I love my brother and I love my sister-in-law and I love their kids. And, and I've been just proud of that family. Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 15, if you would. I appreciate the music this morning, even the special just a few moments ago. And when I have an opportunity to speak and, and occupy a pulpit, uh, I, can't, I, I love preaching anymore. And maybe it's going with getting older, literally getting older. I, I always want to go to the Gospels. And I want to take us to one of, not only the Gospels, but probably one of the most fav, famous portions of the Gospels. We'll be there in just a few minutes. There is an outline in your bulletin this morning. Have you ever been completely misunderstood? I'm going to give an illustration here in a moment. Perhaps you've heard it before. No doubt you have. And if you have, humor me and pretend you didn't. Okay? But uh, being completely misunderstood, I think of the man who knew his wife's birthday was coming up soon. So he asked her without trying to appear obvious, Honey, if you had one wish, what would you want? 
She thought for a moment and laughed and said, I'd like to be eight again. He thought, that's perfect. I know exactly what I'll do. So on the morning of her birthday, he woke her up, and off they went to IHOP for breakfast. And after a huge waffle with strawberries and chocolate chips and whipped cream, they drove off to the nearby theme park. And what a day it was. He put her on every ride in the park. The death slide, the cyclone whip, the screaming loop, the wall of fear, the double ring Ferris wheel. Five hours later, she staggered out of the theme park with her husband. Her head was reeling, her stomach was churning, and off to McDonald's they went where he ordered her a Big Mac with fries and a thick chocolate shake. Then he took her to the latest Disney animated movie where they had popcorn, Pepsi, and a bag of peanut M&M's topping off the day full of fabulous eight-year-old adventures. Exhausted, she stumbled into the house late that evening with her husband, collapsed on the bed. He leaned over her and softly whispered, Well, you got your wish. How did you like being eight again? She opened one eye and surprised and moaned, I meant my dress size. All right, so... <laughs> It's one thing to think that we've been, heard our wives what they said. It's another to actually understood what they meant. Our Lord was completely misunderstood in His ministry. In Luke chapter 15, in perhaps one of the most famous portions of His Gospels that are recorded, we see in verse 1, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke to them a parable. We're going to look at that in a moment. So, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, here referred to as the Pharisees and the scribes, completely misunderstood his earthly mission. As a matter of fact, it had been that way for some time. If you go back, and we won't for sake of time, if you go back to Luke chapter, 50, chapter 5, excuse me, in verse 17, Luke's first mention there is where we find the Pharisees. A few verses later, in verse 21 of chapter 5, is the first mention of the scribes, those religious leaders among the populace, the Pharisees, and then those who were the law, lawyers, the ones who knew the law and could recite it by memory, the scribes. For about 18 months of his ministry, in Luke chapter, well, you begin with Jesus' birth and all, but then you pick up with about chapter 4 or so, and then by the time you get to chapter 5, those Pharisees and the scribes, verse 17, verse 21, you're going to find there some recorded incidences. You'll see, for instance, where a, a, a paralyzed man is lowered through the roof, and he's healed, and Jesus says, heals him and says, your sins are forgiven. That begins everything problematically for him. Who is this man? Only God can forgive sins. There is something going on here. They see... Now, you've got to keep in mind, for 18 months in his ministry, Jesus became the celebrity in the Palestine region. 
He would empty out villages. Think of villages of two, three, four hundred people. And then there would be crowds of thousands, which meant he emptied out villages to come to hear him speak. Sometimes they would travel for days. Sometimes as they gathered then, they hadn't been near grocery stores for times, and he would end up feeding them. But that went on for 18 months. He was the greatest show in town among that region of the country. Everybody when they heard he was coming, went out to hear him. He drew crowds. And eventually that led to envy, that led to hatred. You see, as we read Luke chapter 6 now, and we pick up chapter 5 and into chapter 6, by the time we get to chapter 6, it's in the 18th to 20th month of his public ministry where he has been the lecturer and speaking and teaching to the crowds. And it says that they were angry with him, the, the religious leaders. But if you read Matthew and you read Mark, they not only envied and were angry, but it says they sought to destroy him and how they might then put an end to him. The next verse, Luke chapter 6, verse 11, at that point then he goes into a a mountain, it says, or up high, and he prays through the night, and then when he comes down then, he calls 12 to be his apostles. His shaliah is the Aramaic word, which means my representatives. And for the next 18 months, he's going to invest his life in them. And as he now teaches to the crowds rather than talking publicly because he doesn't have that opportunity more, he's going to invest then in his disciples and invest exceedingly in those twelve. And even in three where he will take them into spots where they get to see things no other humans have seen, like the transfiguration, for instance. But in those next 18 months, he also speaks in parables. So those who are really his true followers now will start to get... And they can question him and ask in details. It's in that context that we find this. And we find here the tax collectors. And it says all. That's quite a categorical how many. All. The tax collectors and sinners drew near to him. He attracts a crowd of people that... The Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, What are you doing? And so what Jesus begins to do is to speak to them. And in a very... He spoke a parable to them. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And he comes home, he calls together his friends, neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, and if you weren't here this morning in the Sunday school hour, you need to be here to hear, perhaps in this class, the a book of Revelation being taught, as good as I've ever seen anyone teach it. As your pastor takes it through that, there are other sessions going on, but one of the things, as Wayne was talking about in Revelation 6, what takes place in heaven? And he's been talking about that in Revelation 6 and 7. Well, here we have a glimpse into that. 
I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, this may be the marital headband that she had, and this might have been like a dowry, and one of them fell out, and so this is a prized possession of hers that she cherished. Or it could be coinage that she uses to shop for her daily groceries. If she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That heralding in heaven, God reveals and says, Back on earth, and God may be disclosing, and He can do it categorically, because there are a lot of people. Did you know one of the relatives you're praying for got saved and there's rejoicing in heaven because of that they become aware of what's taking place on earth because it's answers to prayer then he said here we go this is our passage he's talking to them about things they can identify with villages owned the sheep together it was important to them A woman in her home lost something and they know the value when something is lost. But here comes the portion of the parable that everybody can identify with. Whether you're a wife, whether you're a father, whether you're a brother, whether you're a child. The the characters in this parable for us are identifiable and we can relate And so he begins to speak, and through this parable, it's not about the prodigal son. It's not about his brother. It's about dad. Okay? It's about the father. Okay? And in order to understand this, you have to be aware or familiar with the cultural context We have so westernized this parable over time that we really do lose the meaning. Okay? We misunderstand it in a sense because this is really a parable that ultimately paints a picture, the most beautiful picture of God's love toward us. It's about what we should know about our God. And if you know that, then do something. Okay. I'm teaching second semester right now, among other courses in our seminary, dealing with Trinitarianism. God the Father, then God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And every time when I do this, teach this course, I'm brought again to having to deal with the attributes of God. And again, this parable reminded me of just how good our God is. So join me with, join with me as we look at this. Let me just tell you a little about the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And by the way, I'm going to give you two words. And perhaps Wayne has talked with you about this. There is something in that culture that's not familiar too much to us, but it is into many other cu- uh, cultures in Asia, Eastern Europe, Africa, etc. It's called the shame and honor paradigm. Okay? 
and I think you've probably taught on that here already as we talk about shame and honor. Everything in the culture that Jesus is going to be referring to here, you have to put in the context of shame and honor. As the Pharisees were saying, he eats with and receives sinners. Not only welcomes them, but then he also fellowships with them. His actions were absolutely outrageous. Outside the bounds of what would be considered proper. Behavior that was deficient in propriety and of good taste. And so, as a result, outrageous manners, offensive to decency in their day. And so look with me, please, as we talk about this. And by the way, somebody who's done probably some of the best work on it, if you ever want to go on Amazon and buy a book, it's by Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who ministered in the country of Lebanon for 40 years and was the president of a seminary there in Beirut. He's back in the United States teaching at Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh, but it's called The Cross and the Prodigal. And it'll take you into the context like no other book. This little book has opened up so much, and I'm going to read from it a few paragraphs as we go through this. But what I want you to do is track with me in this outrageous story that Jesus tells the people. It's an outrageous story dealing with what I will call an outrageous or a dysfunctional family. What do I mean by that? Jesus reveals now the depths of God's love through an outrageous story that revolved around the shame and honor paradigm. As we go through it, notice the outrageous features. The first one is found in verse 12. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. I want you to notice in verse 12 what I'm going to call an outrageous, absolutely outrageous exchange. A verbal exchange. The younger son said, Father, give me the portion that falls to me. Let's ask three questions of that phrase. First of all, when does any son in this culture get an inheritance? Only when what? The father dies. This is the equivalent of saying, Father, I wish you were dead. It's an incredibly disrespectful thing to say. He wishes his father were dead to him. The inheritance would fall primarily to the elder son anyway. As I said, for it, I have three sons, okay? What I would do with what I own before I die in my will, everything would be divided because of three sons into then four parts. If you have two sons... You would divide it into three parts because the older son would get what? The double portion, twice as much as the others. So the inheritance, but the younger son is at this point completely out of line with what he says. No son would even murmur this, especially not the younger one. So ask yourself, who does this? What kind of a depraved, disrespectful son shames his father this way? Speaking of the eldest son, by the way, where is he in all of this? 
Why isn't he mediating between the father and the younger son? He's suspiciously absent. But what is the youngest son asking of his father? And so look here with me in this verse for just give me the portion of goods that falls to me. It's a sentence. I'm going to read from Bailey for a moment. The prodigal, young son, demands privilege without responsibility. He uses a long, wordy phrase, Bailey writes. The direct natural request should have been, I want my inheritance. In Semitic languages, Hebrew or Aramaic, this is said in just two words. Rather, this son says, give me the share of property that falls to me, literally. In Arabic and in Hebrew, this is a long circulation, a long phrase. And the word inheritance is not spoken. It's translated that way into English. But kleronomai is not used here. It's used 14 times in the New Testament, four times by Luke, but not here. The word here is usia. The idea then is stuff. Okay? Because in inheritance and what he's saying, why does he go through this? Let me read now. To accept one's inheritance, and the son doesn't say, I want my inheritance. I want some property. Because inheritance involves acceptance of leadership responsibility in the family clan. The recipient of that is then duty-bound to administer the property and help solve family quarrels. He must then defend the honor of the family against all comers, even if his life is to be given. He pledges himself to increase the clan's wealth and represent them nobly at family and village functions, such as weddings, feasts, funerals. He must build the house of his father. That is... Specifically, what the younger son does not want and does not ask for. He wants the money. The word usia can mean wealth, property, money. It appears again, most likely, property, which he in turn is going to cash in. He does not want or ask for his inheritance with what the responsibility then comes involved with it. The prodigal doesn't seem to care about how much others in the family will suffer because of his demands. Not only will he hurt his father, but also the entire family clan. The wealth of the village family is not held in stocks or bonds or savings accounts. Rather, Bailey writes, it is in a cluster of homes and in the animals and in the land. To suddenly lose one-third of their total wealth would mean a staggering loss to the entire family clan. The parable then speaks and states that the the prodigal settled his affairs in a few days, and this means that he liquidated his assets in a hurry, a sale, a fire sale at any price. The accumulated economic gains of generations can be lost then in a few days. That's what he's asking for. So with that in mind, listen to the audience, the Pharisees, the scribes, the tax collectors, and others. What did the Pharisees expect this father should have done? Wayne and I come from a traditional German family in Minnesota. And I know what I'm going to say is not politically correct today. But back where we grew up, if you were a niece or a nephew 
and you said something like this to your dad, any uncle or aunt within arm's reach would have slapped you right on the mouth, okay? And that's what they would have done in the Jewish culture in this parable, okay? Everyone is thinking as they hear Jesus say this, they're thinking somebody should have slapped that boy. And any Jewish father is thinking of his honor. No son would dishonor me this way. They expected the father to save his honor and reprimand his son. So that's the second question. When does any son get his inheritance? What do the Pharisees expect the father to do? But what does the father do? Notice in the latter part of verse 12. So he divided them his livelihood. He divided it. How would they divide it? As I said, two-thirds to the older, one-third to the younger. He divided it to them. What would the people, listeners, be thinking? They're thinking, you've got to be kidding. No self-respecting father would do this. No father would allow his sons to talk to him this way. This is outrageous. Not only does somebody need to slap that son, but somebody needs to settle and straighten that father out as well. Go with me now. That's just number one, this outrageous, as you see here in this verse, exchange, verbal exchange. But now we see the outrageous excess. Verse 13, and not many days after the younger son gathered all together. As you just look at that first of four phrases here, some commentators say that the reason he took off so fast and is going to head out is because he's excited to get on with his life of sin in a hurry to enjoy sin. I dare say that's probably not the case. Bailey tells us that's because of the boy's shame and the scorn in the community dealing with the shame and honor paradigm. It would have been so intense and physically threatening that he would rush to sell off all of his stuff and get out of town, escape as soon as he could. And we see that. The younger son gathered all to gather literally to turn everything into liquid, to get together and sell all. What it means gather doesn't mean he packed his suitcase. It means what? I'm going to sell off this one-third. And how do you sell a massive estate, even a third of it, in a few days? The only way to do that is sell it pennies on the dollar. You can get out of town. You trivialize it. You shamed the name of the family. And he's essentially then renouncing his inheritance, renouncing his heritage, renouncing his family, renouncing his name. And then he travels, it says in verse 13, and journeyed to a far country. To you and me, a far country might be northern Canada, Peru, or something like that. In Jesus' day, a far country was a term that meant to a Gentile region to a Gentile country. So he turns his back also on his Jewish heritage, his religion, his upbringing, and he wasted his substance, it says then, with riotous living. The term, dioscorpiusin, the idea then is to where it says, and it's translated, he wasted, he squandered. Literally it means to scatter it out like this. So he took that money that he had gathered and he went to another country and this boy now who goes to this country 
shames his father, one of the commandments, honor thy father, shames the community by leaving them going to the Gentiles, to unbelievers. Shames his religion. He's going to go and eat with pigs. And then shames himself morally. How? He is going to party. He is going to, as it were, hang out then with and try to gain a liking and fellowship with Gentiles in that sense. And the listeners who are hearing Jesus tell this parable are thinking, this is so outrageous, this would never happen, this is crazy. Nobody can be this shameful. What is happening is Jesus is trying to paint in words the most shameful sinner that he possibly could and they could imagine. The listeners had thought it was the publicans, the tax collectors. The term publican is a term that's made up that says someone who completely serves the republic. He is then a publican. And when they really started turning on Jesus is when he called back in chapter 5. Remember where it says then by chapter 6 they hated him? He had just called Levi, Matthew, who was in Capernaum a what? Tax collector who worked for Rome, had no concern how he would rob his fellow Jews by overcharging taxes. He would tax. He only had to give to the Romans a certain amount, and anything above that was his. Profiting, he became a disgrace. Matter of fact, they weren't allowed in the synagogue. They were shamed. Levi was one of them who became Matthew the Apostle. Okay. And they look at Jesus and his band of followers, his 12, and you've got the most shameful people following you. Imaginable. Completely misunderstood him. Notice thirdly the outrageous existence in verses 14, 15, and 16. Notice first of all what he does. Verse 14, but when he had spent all, spent how much? All. He lost everything. Nothing left of value. Pleasure and sin for a season, Hebrews eleven twenty five says. The fun of sin runs out. It was sin for a season. It has a payday. And notice what happens then. And by the way, the moment they heard that he lost everything, there's something that goes through the mind of every Jew that is hearing Jesus speak. It's called the Kazaza ceremony. I'm sure Pastor Wayne, when he worked through this, may have talked about it. But the Kazaza ceremony is something that is spelled out in the Jerusalem Talmud and other portions that says... how from the Torah, the law, the first five books, what you must do to somebody like this. We'll talk more about the Kazaza ceremony in a few moments, but they're thinking this. And that's a major key to the whole story. The hearers are thinking about this. The most shameful thing you can do is lose your family fortune to a Gentile. 
And as soon as Jesus' listeners discovered this boy had lost everything that his father had in that estate, they immediately would have thought of this kazaza ceremony, which in Hebrew means the cutting off. They would take a large clay barrel. They would go to the city square. The brothers or others would do it. And it generally was held on two occasions. The kazaza ceremony, this clay barrel, was filled with fruit. Okay? They would set the barrel in the town square. And then they would repeat words. And the, the Talmud tells you the words that they would say. This brother of ours has married a woman below the state that he occupies. She is not worthy of him. And we are concerned that they will have seed, meaning children, who then might infiltrate our family seed and pollute us. They then break the barrel and then the fruit falls out. And we ask you to take some of the fruit and remember then as it symbolizes the scattered seed, how polluted our family has become. You only did it when that happened, when a brother married below what the other brothers believed was our family name. Talk about shame and honor, right? We hate our sister-in-law. Ye. Okay. Think about that. The other time is when somebody sold property that belonged to the family to a Gentile. And then they had a verbiage for that. And as a result, that son who did that would be what? Considered cut off as good as dead. Okay. He is dead to us. And the father would turn his back on that son. Okay. The kazaza. Hang on to that for a few moments. Notice his deplorable existence. He began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen. Very rare word. Luke uses it. This is a person of means. To be a citizen, a Roman citizen, you had to be of noble birth or special recognition, and you'd have to have wealth. And this boy is going to try to attach himself to that person. Talk about shaming, no honor. And this citizen finds this Jewish boy because of the garments he would have been wearing that looked Jewish or whatever. This kid's driving me nuts. He's, and he's just trying to use me. And, but I'll know what I'll, I know what I'll do with him. I'm going to have him tending, cleaning up after my pegs. Then he'll finally leave me alone. Doesn't he have any shame? Okay. And so he's trying to get rid of that boy. In the term then he attaches means literally he glues to. He, you and I would say he pesters him. Okay. So the citizen devises a plan to send the boy to take absolute shame. Now he's reduced to a what? Beggar. Notice the outrageous expiation Verses 17, 18, and 19. But when he came to himself, came to his senses, it's been translated, this 
has historically in commentators and across pulpits been mistakenly referred to as his repentance. It is not his repentance. This boy is not repenting. And we used to have and hear, and I heard evangelists and others who would preach this. It is not repentance. The idea is he contrives a plan. Let me tell you what he's literally thinking and saying. I will return, and let's look at this. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to eat and spare, and I perish with hunger, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, no longer worthy to be called your son, shame and honor. Make me like one of your hired servants. And the idea here, I'll return. And his plan is, I will ask to be a hired craftsman. In other words, make me a foreman and I will earn and I will pay back and I will make recompense and be merited again with honor. At the worst, I might become a field hand where I can earn and pay you back. He doesn't offer to become a slave, but a trained craftsman. Not a doulos, but a mythios, a skilled workman. That may take some time, but I'll get enough to pay you back. Still doesn't understand the issues, not about a broken law or lost money, but a broken relationship. Reconciliation is not part of his plan. Notice the outrageous exoneration now in verses 20 through 24. I'll arise. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, let me just stop here for a moment. Remember what we talked about the Kazaza ceremony? As the listeners hear what's going on, the whole village... In historically, something between verse 19 and verse 20 would take place. And Jesus didn't even have to say it. They knew what would take place. When that boy comes walking down the road, his brother will see it. And what will happen is the initiation of this Kazaza ceremony where we will go out and we will then be... We will get around him as he's coming down the road and they would beat on him or spit at him. Or slap him. And then they would break the vessel. And he would be forced then to endure the shame of the people. Pronouncing then epithets at him. Meanwhile his father would slam the door. And not let him come in. Until he somehow had worked out a way to make recompense. And he would have been virtually disowned. And for days he may have sat out there in a public square or done something where he would have then admitted his shame publicly. The whole village needed to save face. And that's how they do it through the Kazaza ceremony. But in this entirely outrageous parable, Jesus does something. 
But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. In other words, his father then ran to him, fell on his neck, kissed him. The listeners are shocked beyond belief. Why? Instead of shaming the son, the father runs to him. This is absolutely outrageous. We ask why? Why so? Because in the Middle Eastern era at this time, men do not run. Men of his age and position always walked slow in a dignified manner. Now, old doesn't need to be as old as Wayne and me, all right? But this man probably has not run in at least 25 years. If you're over 25, if this father's 50 years or older, he would not run. It was shameful to run. Why? Their garments went all the way to the ground. To run, they had to lift their garments and hold it up, exposing their legs. This was the most humiliating posture a man of his stature could live through. It was considered shameful for them to even expose their legs in this way. It was so shameful for them to expose their legs that their laws, their religious laws said if a priest was performing the temple sacrifice slaying animals and his garment fell into the blood, he was not to lift it out of the blood because his legs would be exposed. In that culture, then, men don't go out to the boys. The boys come to the fathers. The point is, it was painfully shameful for the father to do this. Notice, I'm going to read from Bailey's book on page 66 and 7. As the prodigal returned to the village, he expected the father to remain aloof in his house while he made his way through the village. To say the least, he would be subdued in the process by the crowd in the street. As soon as they discovered that the money had been lost among the Gentiles, the kazaza ceremony would be enacted. The son would then be obliged to sit for time outside the gate of the city or the gate of the family home before being allowed in to see his father. Finally, he would be summoned. And the boy then already rejected by the village, the father would be angry. The boy would be obliged to apologize for everything and plead for a job to be trained in the next village then so he could get, earn money. This is not what happens, Bailey writes. The word run in Greek is the technical term to be used of a foot race in a stadium. This father breaks all the rules of oriental patriarchy as he runs down the road to reconcile his son to himself. The father saw him, had compassion, and then raced. Why race? It was not just a slow shuffle or a fast walk. He raced because in the Middle East, a man of his age always walks slowly. But why race to do so then as he did this? He's going to try to outrun the village to avoid his son experiencing the what? The humiliation and shame. In this matchless story, then, we have a clear indication of at least part of what all this means. The best understanding of this text is to see that when the father leaves the house and takes upon himself a humiliating posture on the road, he becomes a symbol of God incarnate. Does not wait for the prodigal to come to him, but rather at great cost to himself. 
and out to find and resurrect the one who was lost and dead. These actions seen in Middle Eastern eyes and context affirm one of the deepest levels of the meaning of the incarnation and the atonement. Paul affirms the same when he says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. This parable then depicts a father who leaves the comfort and security of his home, humiliates himself before the village. The coming down and going out to his son is a parable. God so loved the world, he gave his son. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The parable of the incarnation. You don't understand why I am even here, Jesus said. I am coming to you. The costly demonstration of unexpected love of the village demonstrates then a part of the meaning of the cross work of Jesus Christ. Remember the prodigal? Stunned beyond belief, the prodigal changes his mind, does not finish his speech. The son, remember what he said? Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 21. What did he forget to say? Make me as a servant. To offer to become a craftsman is deliberately set aside. He does not presume anymore to offer any solution to their estrangement. Rather overwhelmed, he can only put himself completely at the mercy of his father and say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He surrenders his will completely. At the beginning of the story, he insisted on unhampered control of his own life. Now he leaves his destiny entirely in his father's hands. Words originally composed in his mind to manipulate and tra- his father are transformed into a speech of genuine repentance. Rather now faced with this incredible event, he's flooded with the awareness that his real sin is not the lost money, but rather the wounded heart. The reality and enormity of his sin, the resulting intensity of his father's suffering overwhelm him. In a flash of awareness, he now knows there's nothing he can do to make up for what he has done. His proposed offer to work as a servant now seems utterly blasphemous. He is not interrupted, by the way. He changes his mind. In this manner, he fulfills the definition of true repentance that Jesus sets forth. And when the father observes that his son has no bright ideas as to how he, the son, is going to solve the problem of their broken relationship, the father orders a party, as did the shepherd and the woman. The father said, notice, the father just stops because of the repentance. Bring out the best robe, his robe. The father's robe. Robe him in my robes and put a ring on his hand, meaning he's mine. Sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He's lost and he's found. And they began to be merry. Now his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near into the house, he heard music and dancing, not the kazaza. 
So he called one of the servants and asked, What do these things mean? And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, and I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And you never gave me a young goat that we might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours doesn't call him his brother, who's devoured your livelihood with harlots. He didn't even know what his brother was doing. He just hated everything he did. You killed the fatted calf for him and said to him, Son, you are always with me. That's what he says to his older son. All that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And so what he see what you see here now and you study this and you you find out what's going on let me just tell you something the shame and honor is over okay what happens is the father during all of this when they have this banquet and this party is to sit here in the high chair and then people would come in and greet him the older brother is to be in the house and he is to act as the concierge Do you know what a concierge does, don't you? He is to go to all the guests and to welcome them and to say, I'm glad that you are here. God bless you for being here. You're bringing joy to my father. And it's good to have you here. He should be there and welcome the guests. He doesn't. He doesn't. Of all the dishonor that you could do as the father in the high seat... He gets up, and sorry, I'm going to lose you in the camera here, From but he leaves. He leaves to go out to whom? His other son as well. He's going to go out to him, and he's going to shame. He's going to shame himself and honor to go out to the other son. He's going to leave the guests. I got things that are important. I need to reconcile those people too, which were the what? Pharisees and the scribes and the others. I came for you too. It's quite a story. How does it end? There's no ending. You ever notice that? There's no conclusion. I got to conclude because I'm overtime. Okay. And I'm, there's no conclusion. It's left with this. What are you going to do? That's how Jesus leaves it. It's decision time, boys. Ladies and gentlemen, is what he's saying to them. The story simply ends. What will you do? How will you respond? This parable is the entire gospel story from Adam and Eve to today. Christ gets all our sin and shame. He is the one humiliated. We get all the honor, robed in his righteousness, The ring, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. We get privilege, we get dignity. His righteousness is ours. The whole story is frankly crazy, absolutely outrageous, unthinkable. Who could ever come up with such a foolish story as our redemption? None other. Well, Paul wrote, the preaching of the cross is what? Say it with me. To them who are perishing, it is what? Foolishness. 
But unto us who are saved, it's the power of God. And all God's people said what? Amen. It was God himself who came up with this story. It's his story about our condition, his love for us. Why? Because frankly, God is crazy about you. Absolutely crazy about you. God loved the world in this way that what? He gave his only begotten son. But God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet, what? Christ died for us as sinners. Why would he do that? For the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life. Pastor Wayne, you come. You pray and lead us in prayer and close as you see fit.